You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. And so this morning we begin to dig into the body of Paul's letter. As Nate last week covered Paul's greeting. And as we get into the body, the first thing we see here is Paul express his gratitude for the Roman believers. And I would argue the expression of gratitude for for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, should be the practice of all of us. We should be grateful for each other and all of our brothers and sisters. And as we look to the example of Paul in this, again, continually giving thanks for believers, we see in, in most of Paul's letters, he expresses this gratitude. And we should also then note not just the gratitude that expressed by, that is expressed by Paul for the other churches and other believers, but, but also his affection, too, for the churches. And I would argue these things go together. Gratitude affects our affections for one another. Some people say that the Scriptures only command our actions. The, the Scriptures only command what we do. The Scriptures do not command our emotions. But that's not true. There are plenty of commands throughout the scriptures directed towards our emotions, towards our feelings. For instance, we see that we are to put to death our earthly, our sinful passions. Love is to be fervent and without hypocrisy. We are to be thankful. We are to not covet. We're not to worry. And our circumstances around us are not to cause us to fret. We all know how easy it is to keep those commands, right? They're reminders of how much we need grace. Scripture does indeed command our emotions. So how is it? How, how can, can I can't control how I feel. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. What do you dwell on? What do your thoughts constantly go to? That you must discipline yourself to control your thoughts. What are the habits that are in your life that are going to fill your mind and your heart with, with desires that are either sinful or godly? What do you focus on and, and tell yourself? We've talked many times how we are not to be led by our emotions, but instead we are to lead our emotions. I think there's a helpful quote by Burke Parsons when he says, preach truth to your emotions, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth will begin to change your emotions. And I think he's right. If we here as brothers and sisters in Christ, here in North Valley, if we, we lack the proper affection for one another, what must, what must we ask ourselves 
that we are dwelling on? And what truths do we need to preach to ourselves? What must we dwell on concerning one another? What do we have to be thankful for, for each of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Can we truly not think of anything? Even just the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ? That we've been brought together? Despite our sin, despite our backgrounds, despite anything about ourselves, we've been brought together to be made one in the body of Christ? For the edification and growth? of each other, and encouragement of each other? We see here, Paul, he never met the Romans that he's writing to, and yet he still found something to be grateful for. We should be grateful for one another. Now again, as I said last week, they covered Paul's opening, his salutations, and so in that covered, Paul, the one who wrote this letter, who he is, and and covered his apostleship, being set apart for the gospel, and that gospel, the gospel that had been promised beforehand through the scriptures concerning God's son, concerning the God-man, the one who is a descendant of David according to the flesh, the one who died and rose again and is our Lord. You see, through Christ, the apostles received grace for their calling to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, which included those believers in Rome who were called to belong to Christ. It's to these that Paul wrote this letter. And there we see in that introduction his greeting them with peace and grace. So then that, that brings us to get into the body of this letter. And So let's, let's begin to read the body of this letter as we read together verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's grace I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. So as we begin working through the body of Paul's letter, we see that Paul felt that there was something specific he had to start his letter off with. There was something, a priority that he had to say first, right? It's right there in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He felt he had to start by expressing his gratitude for the Roman believers. Now, this is a common way for Paul to start his letters. And speaking a good word and a word of thankfulness was also very common in Greco-Roman letters. But that does not mean that Paul's expression of gratitude is insincere here. One, Paul did not express his gratitude in 
in all of his letters. We have at least one, uh, Galatians, where he's writing to the church in Galatia that had begun to abandon the gospel. And there was such urgency in what Paul had to say. And as you read that letter, you see that clearly he's writing with a broken heart in frustration. And so it's so vital for him to get straight to the point without expressing any gratitude for a church who first received the gospel from him, from Paul, but then began to follow after a different gospel, which, by the way, is no gospel at all. There is only one gospel. There is only one good news of salvation that is the proclamation of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of us unworthy sinners. And that gospel includes the necessary response of repentance and faith. It seemed especially important for Paul to start his letter expressing this gratitude that he had for these Roman believers. And so we see here in verse 8, Paul gave thanks to God for these Romans, and he says here he gave thanks to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul can enter into the presence of God in prayer, lifting up his thanksgiving to God, and do it through Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the one who provides access to the throne of God by his sacrificial death, by his substitutionary death. And this is true for all of us. We all can come into the presence of God and even live in the presence of God, approach the throne of God, the throne of grace, and expect grace. We can come and and lift up our thanksgiving because of Jesus. We come through Jesus. Before Christ's death, the only way to God was through the mediating work of the Levitical priesthood. There was only one who could enter God's presence, the high priest, and he could only do so once a year, and only after the right ceremonial washing, and only after putting on the right garb. And he came then into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on behalf of those whom he represented. And then to enter the presence of God, he had to pass through a curtain. A curtain that separated the place where God had specifically set his presence in the Holy of Holies, a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. But when Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. When he gave up his spirit, having accomplished the salvation for all who he represents as our high priest, that time then the temple curtain was torn in two. For now Christ is the new and living way to the Father. And this is what we read as we look to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is through Jesus that we 
undeserving sinners have access to the holy God. That we can come and lift up our prayer requests, lift up our prayers of thanksgiving. So Paul too came to the Father through Jesus and gave thanks for the Roman believers. We see he gave thanks to them and he tells us why he gave thanks to them. Specifically, he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, when he says this, there are some who argue that Paul is speaking in hyperbole. I mean, was their faith really proclaimed throughout all the world? Or, or as you can translate it, their faith was proclaimed through the whole cosmos? Is Paul really saying, did he really mean that? Could their faith really be proclaimed through the whole cosmos? Well, why not? Especially as we think through what Paul could mean by cosmos. Uh, that Greek word has a, a very broad semantic range. It could be denoting any number of things. And in this context, it could refer to the, the whole known world at that time. <clears throat> it could refer to the, the whole Roman Empire. Or Paul could mean by the whole cosmos that their faith was known even just throughout the empire and beyond, however far it reached. Any of these ways that Paul could mean cosmos are feasible to understand that their faith was literally known in all these places. And if their faith was known truly throughout the whole world, that would be remarkable. Maybe it was as people traveled to Rome on business. They encountered these believers who did not say Caesar is Lord, who would not say Caesar is Lord. And that they, they stood bold and firm that Jesus is Lord. However, word about their faith spread, it, it spread. The news of this faith in the central city of the great empire in such a pagan city, this faith became widely known. That must mean, then, that they did not keep their faith to themselves. I know many, especially in my parents' and my grandparents' generations, have held to faith as something that was more of a personal, a private matter. You know, we've all heard it said that the two things you don't talk about in public is religion and politics, right? And that can't be the case because then the only thing I'd have left to talk about is baseball. So clearly that's wrong. But no, it is wrong. Faith is not a private matter. To think so is to buy a lie. A lie straight from the father of lies. Faith in the living God and the only Savior is to be made known. We have been commissioned by our Lord to make our faith known, to tell of the one who our faith is in, to tell of what he's done that we trust in him, having faith to be saved. Faith is not a private matter. Unless, of course, your faith is a false faith. Unless your faith is in a false gospel, then by all means, keep that to yourself. 
But if you know the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, if you really know this salvation Jesus has provided, how can you keep it to yourself? That would be to live ungrateful. That would be to live in unbelief. That would be to show no evidence that you have true saving faith. Because if you know the truth, if you know the gospel, if your faith is in this Savior, then you have a faith that is too great, too glorious to keep to yourself. It's so great and so glorious, it couldn't be generated in you, by you. It had to be a gift to you from God by His grace. Because it's such a great and glorious faith. How could you keep that to yourself? I submit that you can't. And then starting there in verse 9, Paul speaks of his prayers to be able to visit the Roman believers. And he works through this passage to assure them that he indeed was praying to this end. And so there in verse 9, we see he invokes God as his witness that he's been praying to be able to get to visit them. And he specifies which God that he's praying and and calling on as a witness the God whom he serves with his spirit in the gospel of his son. The idea here of serving with his spirit was that he served with his whole being. He served from his most inner person, from the depths of who he is. And so we see then Paul was not a reluctant servant, but he served out of a deep desire, which is the case for the true believer. And so is evidence of our salvation. We deeply desire to serve this God who saved us, who revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, in his word. Matter of fact, such service is part of our worship. This word that is translated here as serve, sometimes is translated as worship. And Paul's worshipful service, especially here, was in the preaching of the gospel of God's Son, of the God-man, of Jesus Christ. And this, as we've seen studying in Acts in Sunday school, of this, Paul was willing, even determined, to give his last breath for this service, for this worship in preaching the gospel, to serve his great God and king the way his king called him to, as an apostle. Are we willing? Are we determined to serve our God to that end? To give of ourselves? To even give of our very last breath to the worship and service of our God? To do just as he has called us to do? To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we determined to give our last breath to that? To give our lives? And if not, why? Is there something greater to give your last breath for? To to lay down your life for? Is there there something better to be dying for and therefore something better to live for? No. It can't be. There's nothing greater than the glory of our great and awesome God. No message greater proclaimed than the gospel. There is nothing greater to lay down our lives for, and therefore nothing greater to live for. Well, we must see this. 
And so are we willing to give of ourselves for this gospel to serve our great God in our worship? If not, we have to ask why. Why can't we see how glorious this gospel truly is? Now, it was this God that he served that Paul could call upon as his witness. That he was truly praying that he would be able to get to visit the Romans. And he could do this because he served this great God. And as he did, he was aware that his life and his everything was in full view of this God. And what more, Paul knew the intimacy of faith as he walked before this God. We see that intimacy again in verse 8, when he refers to God as his gods. Again, saying, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And we too should know this intimacy of faith. This intimacy of faith, to know it, we, we know it in the laying down of our lives as a living sacrifice. That's what that intimacy looks like, as we see it described in chapters 12 through 15 of Romans. It's that intimacy of faith that looks like walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling, as we see in Ephesians 4. It is, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And as we do so, in this too, our lives are lived out before the God we serve. He sees all about us, all within us. Every thought, every motive. And so Paul could then call on him as his witness. And we see Paul says here, for God is my witness. And what's the word for? It's a conjunction, right? And what do we always talk about conjunctions? Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? There's some, though, that would rather just skip over this. There's translations that leave the word for out here. But you can't do that. One, because as you look to the Greek, the word gar, that's translated as for here, is there. It's there. And, and Thomas Schreiner, on leaving this out, explains, this is a mistake, since Gar signals that Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is linked with his desire to visit. So we see Paul was so thankful that the gospel had come to Rome, bearing fruit in these Roman believers to the extent that their faith was known throughout the whole cosmos. And so Paul longed to come visit them. So he was praying that he'd be able to get to visit them. And we'll see that he wanted to come for the sake of, one, spreading the gospel among them, but also, two, to serve them. He was praying to get to them to have the opportunity to serve. Let me ask, do we, do we pray to that end? Praying to be able to get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to visit together, to be with one another, that we may have the opportunity to serve one another? Uh, maybe if you were feeling sick during the week, uh, maybe you were praying, Lord, maybe I feel better by the weekend so I can get to church to serve my brothers and sisters. 
that should be how we pray. We should be asking God for those opportunities to serve one another, to serve our our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage each other. Paul wanted them to know that he wanted to come visit them, that he wanted to get to Rome, because he wanted to serve them, but, but he hadn't been able to get there. So again, he called on God as his witness. That this had, and he showing that this has been his prayer. Because he wanted them to know for sure. He didn't want them to doubt that this was truly his desire. And, and why? Well, it could be maybe that there were some who would wonder if Paul really wanted to visit them. Now, I mean, this wasn't a church he planted. He had never been there before. So does Paul really want to come? Does he really care? There are also others who suggest <clears throat> that there may be some who felt slighted by Paul, Paul who was the apostle to the Gentiles, because he did not come to those who were in the very heart of the Gentile world. And so Paul is working to reassure them, no, I really want to come, I do. I just haven't been able to. And as he's explaining to them that he's been praying to be able to get there, we see the content of his prayer there at the end of verse 10. It says, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And so we see here, Paul prayed to God because he knew that the only way that he was going to get to Rome to visit this church is if it was God's will for him to do so. Clearly, up to this point that he's writing, it had not been God's will because he had not gotten there. You know, I think this is a good example for us of what we talked about just a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study. That God is sovereign. And again, sometimes we ask the question, well, why pray if God is sovereign? But, but that's not the right question. The right question is, if God is sovereign, how can we not pray? If we know only God can affect our situation, if we know that it is only God's will that will be done, why would we not pray to him? Why would we not seek him and seek his will and make our requests known to him? Clearly, Paul knew that God was sovereign. He knew going to Rome had to be his will. And so, far from being discouraged from praying because God is sovereign, and said God's sovereignty is the very thing that drove him to pray. And that should be the same for us as well. God's the one in control. God's the one who we must seek and trust in and depend upon in our circumstances. Well, we see in verse 11 that he prayed this way, longing to visit them, And it says here, so that, so it's given us the reason, so that he may impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them. And so we have to ask then, what is the spiritual gift that he wants to impart in visiting them? Well, some argue, well, maybe this could be the, the gifts of the Spirit. I, and I don't, I don't think that, that can be what he's talking about here. One, because he, he speaks of 
the word gift in the singular. And whenever we see the gifts of the Spirit reference, it's, it's plural. Two, Paul was talking about him coming to impart to them some spiritual gift. And nowhere in Scripture do we see a mere man, even an apostle, be the one to distribute the gifts. Instead, it is Jesus who gives the gifts through his grace as distributed by the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, if he's not talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he's especially then not talking about uh, those gifts that are sometimes referred to as the charismatic gifts, which I would argue that there is significant evidence to see that by this time in church history, those gifts, the usage of those gifts, were already beginning to fade. Now, it may be possible that Paul is referring to a spiritual benefit that would come from him as an apostle as he came there preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, praying, guiding, and discipling. Maybe. But as Paul says here that he wants to impart some spiritual gift, it would appear that Paul, at that point in time that he's writing, wasn't really sure what gift he would impart to them. And so maybe it is that Paul really was just waiting to be able to get there and see what needs there were, and then based on those needs, impart some spiritual gift, whatever they, they needed. And, and to be honest, I think that's what makes the most sense. But we see here, though, as Paul is saying, he wants to come to them to impart some spiritual gift for their strength. He wants to make sure it's clear that he does not mean that they will be the only ones who benefit from his visit. And so he, he makes sure that's clear there in verse 12 when he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So just as much as Paul hoped to go to Rome to encourage the believers there and serve them, Paul figured that's just as much as he would benefit them, that they would be a benefit to him. And that's important. Especially as we think it's the Apostle Paul, right? And so, brothers and sisters, we must pursue mutual encouragement among each other. We must understand, I need you, my family needs you, and you need us, and, and you all need each other, and, and we're here together for a reason and a purpose that God has placed us in this community of the local church together. It's not a mistake, it's by his sovereignty, we are all here together in this community to encourage each other, to press each other on, uh, to be part of each other's growth in the Lord and our walk and our faith. We'll be committed then to one another. And so then see the gathering of the church as a high priority. Among the highest. Which, by the way, I, I want to take the opportunity then to put in another plug for Wednesday nights. We're going over this very thing. And I do, I want to urge you, please, if you don't make it out, if you haven't been making it out, make it a priority to get out, to discuss why we, we do gather, why it's such a priority, and what that means for our commitment to one another. We see it is important. It should be a priority for us. And so therefore we want to instill it as a priority for our kids, Right? And so we must do that in both word and deed. If we're not making the gathering of the local church a priority in our lives, what makes us think we're going to be able to instill it in our kids' lives? 
we shouldn't be surprised if our children grow up and they're not in church if we're giving other frivolous things more priority over the gathering. Instead, we, we have to understand what this gathering is. That part of our gathering, Sunday after Sunday, part of our investing in each other, even beyond Sundays, to grow in our relationship with each other, to understand why God has placed us together by his wisdom, that we'd be committed to each other. We need to be encouraged and to be an encouragement to press each other on, to grow, to love, and to good works to the glory of our God. To confide in, to lean on, to hear out, to show grace, to correct, to sharpen each other, to lift up and be concerned for each other's spiritual growth. And again, like I said, note, it's the Apostle Paul that was looking to be encouraged by the Roman believers. Not just encourage them, but be encouraged by them. He didn't see himself as beyond need of anyone that's in the church, even these Roman believers whom he never met. He knew they were for his own encouragement and growth as well. So listen, if we see ourselves as beyond others in the church to teach us and to encourage us or to be part of our growth, if we think, well, I'm here for their growth, but we fail to see because we're not humble, and so we fail to see how they will affect our growth, we can't see the encouragement onto right things and good works that they can affect in us, be warned, because then we are so venomously arrogant that we best take heed lest the Lord humble us with a great fall. You should see the humility in the Apostle Paul here. Speaking of that humility, John Calvin said this, See to what degree of modesty his pious heart submitted itself, so that he disdained not to seek confirmation from unexperienced beginners, nor did he speak disassemblingly, disassemblingly for there is no one to avoid so void of gifts in the church of Christ, who is not able to contribute something to our benefit. But we are hindered by our envy and by our pride from gathering such fruit from one another. Such is our high-mindedness. Such is the inebriate... In, in, yeah. yeah, thanks. And variety, really, right? Produced by vain reputa reputation that despising and disregarding others, everyone thinks that he possesses what is abundantly sufficient for himself. Think about that. Are we beyond anyone else investing in us, being part of our growth and encouragement, that we wouldn't need them? No. No. Forbid such thoughts. And then in verse 13, Paul again reassures the Roman believers that he has had every intention on coming to them and that it has been the case 
But as he says, thus far he has not been, he has been prevented. And then we read here another reason for having wanted to come to them. The end of verse 13, it says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul longed to reap a harvest of the gospel, of gospel fruit among the believers there in Rome. As he says here, as among the rest of the Gentiles. And now one, we should understand that this is not saying that Paul wanted to see converts within the church, as in he didn't believe that everyone named among the Roman believers were genuine believers. Uh, there's no evidence of that. Uh, but he clearly desired to strengthen the Roman believers and see new converts join their ranks. Paul wanted to see the gospel bear fruit among the Romans as it has in other places where Paul has preached the gospel. And the reason is that he gives again is in verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. See, Paul knew exactly what his calling was. And he knew what his obligation was as an apostle. As an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he was obligated. And this word obligated could also be translated as in debt. Paul had a debt to pay. And as many explain, you, you can be in debt in one of two ways. You can take something from someone or having received something from someone that you need to pay back. You're in a debt, in debt to that person. Or if Jason gave me a hundred bucks and said that, hey, can you give this to Jim? Well, now I'm indebted to Jim. I have that hundred bucks in my possession and I got to give it to him. I'm indebted to him. And, and that's really the way in which Paul, and really all of us, are indebted. We've been given the gospel. And there are those we need to give the gospel to. We're indebted to them. And having this debt gave Paul a thirst, a drive to pay that debt. He had to give this gospel to honor his master by giving it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, he was driven out of love for people to be saved, and above all, out of love for the glory of his God and Savior. And so Paul would preach to all, despite anything about them, whether educated or sophisticated Greeks or uneducated and unsophisticated barbarians, whether the wise or the fool. And in each case, everyone in between. Now, there are some in the church growth movement that have encouraged that a church should pick the demographic that it wants to reach, who their target is. And then they should shape everything about their church and how their church looks and how it functions, shape it all according to reaching their target. We discussed a little bit about this even just this past Wednesday night. I gave at least one reason why that's wrong, but there are a plethora of reasons that that philosophy is wrong. One is that the target of the gospel is not any specific kind of people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people without distinction. 
are to proclaim the gospel. We are to cast our nets wide. And whoever God then brings in, whatever fruit he bears forth, we will reap that harvest. This was Paul's goal. This was Paul's debt. And therefore he says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so we see here in these verses that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to both the lost Gentiles in Rome, but also to the believers in Rome. He's, he's writing to those, he's speaking to those he's writing to, saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, why would that be the case? I mean, we understand why he wants to preach it among the lost Gentiles, right? They, they need to be saved, and so they need the gospel, but, but believers are already saved. Right. And believers who are already saved need the gospel. The unbeliever needs it to be saved. The believer needs it to grow in their faith and their walk with the Lord. We all need the gospel. And Paul knew this. And desiring to serve and encourage the church, he desired to preach the gospel to them. And so desiring to serve and encourage one another, we should desire to preach the gospel to one another, to remind the gospel to remind each other of the gospel as we even so preach the gospel to ourselves, right? And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Look to Christ, who is God come in the flesh. Look to Christ, who as God is holy and righteous and so lived a holy and righteous life on behalf of all who, who believe on him as a man. Be encouraged. Look to him who suffered the infinite wrath that your sins deserve, that you deserve. And he suffered it yet in your place, you who believe. Look to him who died having paid for your sin in full. Look to him who lives. Look to your risen Lord. Look to him and grow in your affection for him. Look to him and grow in the esteem of his sacrifice. Look to him and live for him. Put off sin, be holy, and give this gospel to others. Give it to others so that the unbeliever you know might look and live. Uh, give it to others so that your brothers and sisters in Christ would continue to look and continue to grow as they continue to live. I pray that we are growing in our, our gratitude for each other, and therefore growing in our affection for one another, and growing in the desire to want to serve one another, and therefore we should be growing in preaching the gospel to each other. We have a debt to both the sophisticated and unsophisticated as well. We have a debt to the wise and unwise, and everyone in between. Let us fill that debt. Let us give out the gospel to the lost world around us and to each other right here, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we grow together in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.